the one and only Cliff Richard and the Shadow. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to Episode 5 of We Say Yeah, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast. Well, first and foremost, I want to say hello to all of our listeners in Brazil. You know, I can see the statistics that show where the most downloads are coming from, and Brazil is far and away the country where we have the most listeners. So, how do you say thank you in Portuguese? Well, I guess I'll figure it out by the end of the show. I wanted to uh, tell you about a few reactions we had to last month's program about the Cliff Sings album with Terry Hope from CliffRichardRadio.com, her fellow CRR host, Darren Price, who hosts the program Rise Up with Darren Price, writes great podcast over on our Podbean site, so thank you for that. Graham Ralph over on the We Say Yeah podcast page on Facebook, which y'all should join if you haven't joined yet. Um, he asks, and this is in regard to the monthly status of this podcast, can't you do it any sooner? You know, <laughs> and he was kidding when he said that, but I, I wish I could. I wish this was a weekly podcast, but with all the stuff I do, you know, because I have like a radio show and I'm a voice actor and I have a full-time job, it's like a struggle just to get one of these done, <laughs> but I love doing it. I love doing all those things, actually. And I wanted to get to an email I received at we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. That's our uh, email address, we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. This comes from Emma, who writes, Dear Ghosty, I just wanted to write in and thank you for throwing a spotlight on the career of Cliff Richard with your super enjoyable podcast. Although a national treasure to many of us here in the UK, in my humble opinion, Cliff doesn't often get the recognition he deserves as an artist. So it's a pleasure to find a pod that explores and honors his contribution. I'm a 40-year-old Cliff fan, which I think still counts as youthful in the world of Cliff fandom, having been indoctrinated into his music and films by my mom from around the age of knee-high to a grasshopper. I heard about your pod through TCB cast. Yep, I'm a big Elvis fan too, and particularly enjoyed listening to the episode you did with Gurdip recently. Each episode is making me realize that I have much, much more music to revisit and some still to explore. Anyway, I'll stop waffling. I just wanted to express my appreciation on today of all days because later this afternoon, my mom, aunties, and I are off to London's Royal Albert Hall to see the old boy in concert, and there aren't many from that era you can still say that about. It's been a year delayed for obvious reasons, but it'll be so good to see him back and doing what he does best. And that's coming from Emma in Oxfordshire, England. Emma, I am so envious of you that you went to that Cliff concert, and she said she had a great time at the show, as everybody did, I'm sure. That was my big plan for 2020. I had saved up the money. I had planned to go over uh, from America to London, go to the Royal Albert Hall, see the show, and then COVID hit and everything went on pause and all of that money that I had saved had to go to other things. But who knows? Maybe at some point in the future I can start planning for uh, that summer holiday again. All right, on to the show. Our guest this month is author Andrew Hickey. Now, he has a book and podcast series called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, which is pretty spectacular. And he's written many books about a bunch of topics that people like us are interested in, the Beach Boys, the Monkees, the Kinks. Well, I wanted to get him on the show this month to talk about the film Expresso Bongo and the soundtrack EP. And I began our conversation by asking about this project of his, A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs. Was it meant to be a podcast? Was it meant to be a book? Which came first?
Um, sort of a bit of both. When I first started planning the project, I intended it as a book uh, because I'd written many books before. And it was sort of a massively expanded version of a book I did called California Dreaming, which looked at the history of pop music just in LA between 1960 and 1970. And that had been for my writing a relatively successful book. So I decided to do something on a much more massive scale, but the same kind of thing. But then I heard a podcast called Cocaine and Rhinestones, which is a country music history podcast. And the way that podcast tells the stories um, is very, very similar to my own storytelling style, if you like. And I thought it was particularly interesting the way he integrated the music into the into the narrative and the way the podcast narrative form allows you to do various narrative techniques you can't do in print. And so well before I started actually writing anything, I'd changed my mind and decided it was going to be a podcast series. But the very, very initial preliminary research where I put together a rough list of songs, that was planning for a book. I see. Well, I couldn't help but notice that Cliff Richard and the Shadows got a mention a few times in your podcast. Yeah. So where do Cliff Richard and the Shadows fit in your musical landscape? Well, they're in a very odd position in British popular culture in that the early Cliff stuff, up until about the point of this EP that we're covering today, um, the early Cliff stuff is some of the most innovative rock and roll music made in Britain at that time, certainly. Um, but in Britain, Cliff and the Shadows are such a cultural institution and such a regarded as conservative cultural institution that it's very difficult for anybody who grew up after their initial period of success, as I did, to go back and listen to them with, a, with an open mind. Um, mm. But... At the same time, those early records were massively, massively influential. I mean, Move It was the first British rock and roll record that was... I, John Lennon said Move It by Cliff Richard was the first British rock and roll record that was anything like. You know, they, they were properly very, very good records. And, of course, Cliff did some very interesting stuff well up until the late 60s. You know, he was doing Tim Harding covers and things like this. You know, not stuff that you would necessarily expect given his popular image. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in my podcast is to put records back in the context of their times to allow people to listen to them with fresh ears, which is definitely something I did both with um, Move It by Cliff and with Apache by The Shadows, um, hmm. because both those tracks are two of the four or five most important tracks in pre-Beatles British rock and roll music. But I can pretty much guarantee that nobody my age or, young, or younger in Britain has given them a second thought. Um, and so that's, that's what I've tried to do there. It's interesting you say that because one of the reasons that I decided to do this deep dive into the music of Cliff Richard and the Shadows is because I have read a lot of books on rock and roll history Primarily, they're written by Americans, and the general consensus is rock and roll came along in the 1950s, and the Brits couldn't get their act together until the Beatles came along. And I learned, of course, that was untrue. Uh, that's written from a position of ignorance. Yes. And there was significant work being done by Cliff Richard and the Shadows, Billy Fury, Marty Wilde. Yeah. You know, great, great music, and really, like as you say, innovative stuff. So have you seen the film Expresso Bongo. Oh, yes. it's uh, Again, this, this is a film that 
for British people who think of a Cliff Richard film, it is absolutely nothing like that because Cliff is basically known to people, certainly of my generation, as somebody whose films were on every Easter and summer holidays and Christmas. And it was always the same couple of films. It was Summer Holiday and The Young Ones, which are very much like Elvis's films of that period, like Blue Hawaii and GI Blues. They're sort of soft travelogues, um, light, light comedy and light pop songs. Expresso Bongo, on the other hand, is one of the most interesting films made in Britain in the late 50s and early 60s, which is a, a period of British film I'm quite interested in. Um, it's a remarkably interesting satire of the whole British pop landscape of 1957 through 1962. Um, and it oddly reminds me of a lot of Billy Wilder's work. It, mm. reminds me, it also reminds me, actually, of the film um, The Girl Can't Help It, which was partly sort of a rip-off of Billy Wilder's work, but was also a satire of the American music industry at the time. But it's a sort of grubbier, bleaker world it's set in because Soho of the late 50s and early 60s was a grubby, bleak world. Um, and it's from the, the point in Cliff's career that I find by far the most interesting. Um, and I will let you ask some more questions because I could, I could rant <laughs> the entire length of time, and I'm very aware that I I tend to monologue a lot. So, <laughs> well, I'm I'm happy that you're excited by the topic. That's good. You know what I'm going to say about Expresso Bongo, just for the benefit of people who might be hearing this that haven't seen it. It's based on a play of the same name. Uh, Wolf Mankiewicz wrote it. Val Guest directed the film. We have Lawrence Harvey, Sylvia Sims as a stripper. Already, I'm sold. Cliff Richard and uh, Yolanda Donlan. So the basic plot is Lawrence Harvey plays Johnny Jackson, a small-time grifter looking to further the career of his stripper girlfriend, played by Sims. He discovers Cliff in a coffee bar, which is right out of that history you were just talking about. You know, Larry Barnes yeah. going down there. Oh, I'll have one of those. I'll have one of those. And um, he changes Burt Rudge's name to the now infamous Bongo Herbert. <laughs> and uh, the rest of the film is, like you said, you know, you were comparing it to, or you were comparing Cliff's other movies, uh, The Young Ones and Summer Holiday, to uh, Elvis pictures. It, it's similar in some respects to Loving You, Elvis Presley's yes. second film, except it's much, much more cynical <laughs> and yes. and gritty. And it's of that era where... You know, ah, these kids with their rock and roll, you know, we'll put one over on them. We'll get a kid and we'll throw them up there and do, you know, it, it's it's that kind of attitude. And, you know, the influence of this film is pretty far reaching because the Julian Temple movie, Absolute Beginners from 1986, covers the same period. And I'm, I see echoes of Espresso Bongo in that film. Very much, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's a, a fascinating film. I, c I can see the comparison to Loving You. I also see it, um, a sort of a comparison to Jailhouse Rock. Yes. The sort of more cynical thing. It's, it's very much, as I said, Cliff's later films are very much like 60s Elvis films. This is more in the wheelhouse of the... 50s black and white Elvis films. Um, but I would argue even more cynical than Jailhouse Rock, which is a very cynical film, you know. Uh, mm. And the musical it was based on, the stage musical it was based on, was apparently even more cynical. It was actually a very specific parody of the life of Tommy Steele, who was Britain's first homegrown rock and roll star. Mm. Um, and Steele actually planned to sue over the stage musical because it was so 
cruel <laughs> to him personally. And so they toned that down a little bit and made the Bongo Herbert character a little bit more likable and a little bit less directly based on Tommy Steele. Um, one of the things that fascinates me about British pop music in the late 50s and early 60s is that it comes from this very weird place of intersection between British showbiz and a sort of leftist alternative culture. So, for example, Wolf Mankiewicz, who wrote the play, he was suspected for a long time by MI6 of being a communist agent in Britain. Um, and he worked a lot with Val Guest, but Val Guest also directed, like, sex comedies and hammer horror films and all sorts of things. And so you've got this weird intertwining at, at this point between a, a sort of nascent counterculture and a very, very glam showbiz thing, all linked in in this Soho community, which then Mankiewicz is writing about in, in the play. It has elements of the kitchen sink drama. You know, it's from... It's absolutely. Yeah, from that same school. Yes. The characters in the in the film are perform. It's it's diegetic to a point. The characters are performing yeah. songs in the film because they are performers on stage and that's their job. And then, at it's some point, she's halfway right? through to being uh, right. being uh, a stage yeah, right. kind of thing. Yes, yeah. It, it, it go it goes from. I think I think it's about forty five minutes in. It goes from all the songs being stage performances, either by the stripper character or by Bongo Herbert. And then it goes it goes into these much more stagey musical numbers, and it is it's like a the switch gets flicked halfway through, um, and of course that's the point where some of these songs switch from being sort of Nori Paramore songs written for Cliff to being songs written by the writers of writers of the play, so you get a very different musical style as well. It becomes this sort of almost Cole Porter. Um, internal rhyming songs and stuff rather right yeah it's a very very odd move to switch like that halfway through a film yeah it's it was very jarring because i didn't expect lawrence harvey to burst into song on the street corner yes after seeing everything that we had seen and in america this film was released in the u.s and so many of the musical numbers were cut out Right. I think they just basically left the cliff songs in. That sort of makes sense, but at the same time, in the latter half of it, so much of the narrative is in the, is in the songs. I can't imagine how you would um, switch over. Although, again, that's, that's another way in which it sort of resembles The Girl Can't Help It, which is, I think, the closest American film you can compare this to. In, that, in The Girl Can't Help It, most of the music is diegetic performance by Gene Vincent or Eddie Cochran or whoever. But then you have these scenes where Julie London appears as a ghost and starts singing. Right. And those are much, much more like a standard musical thing as well. So I, I'm, I'm now sort of wondering if that, if that was an inspiration for doing it that way. But it, I, I suspect it's just that they cut out songs from the first half of the stage musical to give Cliff some numbers, and but then still had the whole back half to... Yeah, it, it's very, 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 very odd way of doing things, though, yes. So let's move on to the soundtrack EP featuring the songs performed by Cliff and the Shadows in the movie. I did wonder, though, was there ever a proper soundtrack album that included all the other songs from the movie? Not that I've heard of. No, um, hmm. I, I don't. I don't believe. I don't believe so. Um, it sort of makes sense because I believe there was an album of the stage musical, which included some of right. the things. Um, although they changed a lot of the songs between the stage musical and the film, um, 
in Britain, the rock and roll market was very much a singles market. And so it it wouldn't have been thought to, to be sellable, you know. Right. So much like the Serious Charge EP, now we get the Espresso Bongo EP featuring the four songs from the film. It was released in January 1960, featuring a photo of Cliff playing the bongos there, or miming the bongos. Although, he does play that Indian drum at the beginning, as they called it, of Apache. So, you know, I guess there's some precedent there. Apparently he plays on um, the um, bongo blues as well, um, according according to the credits. So... You know, maybe maybe he's maybe he's actually playing, you know. Who knows? So yeah. the first cut is the song Love. Well, love like a fire, cozy and bright, you with flames of desire, and tears your heart all day, and burns your heart out of night. Well, when her lips look, I feel the fighting, brother. Keep your head, just take it slow, daddy, oh, you live it up and soon be dead. This was written by Nori Paramore, a name that's going to continue to pop up during our discussion today. He wrote a lot of the stuff on this EP. And uh, songwriter Bunny Lewis, who to me is best known for writing the song Caramia, which David Whitfield had a hit with in the UK. And in America, Jay and the Americans had a big uh, cover hit with that. This song was recorded on September 8th, 1959. I like this song a lot. You know, it harkens back to those first frenetic few singles that Cliff put out, which were heavily Elvis-inspired. Yeah, Love, I I like precisely because it's sort of a, a holdover from the earlier the earlier Cliff style, because I, I I really like those Move It and Dynamite and those kind of things. It's a little bit closer to my ears to being a sort of Carl Perkins style rockabilly rather yeah. than an Elvis style rockabilly though, I, I find. Um I have to say a lot of the Novi Paramore songs that we're discussing here, I'm not a huge fan of Paramore anyway. Um he tends to be somebody who wrote songs that weren't very good, but got his artists to perform them because he was in charge of what they got to perform. There was the old joke that his colleagues used to make that when he walked past it saying, oh, I do like to see me on the B-side because he, he would write the B-sides for, for all his artists' records um, in order to claim the royalties. Um, and Love sort of has that kind of feel to it. It, it, feel, it feels like a song written for the money you know love ain't no fool it's not a great piece of songwriting by any means but i i do think that it's it's got a good sound to it it's like i say it's very much that country flavored carl perkins-esque rockabilly rather rather than the harder edged rockabilly that cliff was doing on um, move it and dynamite and so on and i I think I think we're starting here to see the influence of Ricky Nelson coming in, who was going to be the big influence of Uncliff for the next couple of years. Yes, we we've talked about that in previous podcasts, especially on the last album that we talked about, Cliff sings, where he does a version of "I'm Walking" that is essentially Ricky Nelson's version of "I'm Walking." It's almost identical. So the next cut was also released as a single. This is also another Nori Paramore and Bunny Lewis. At first, you know, because Nori Paramore used so many pseudonyms, I thought Bunny Lewis was a pseudonym of Nori Paramore, yeah. but it actually is him. And this is A Voice in the Wilderness. I like this song. I've always liked it. It got to number two. Cliff, however, did not care for the song. And he argued with his manager, Tito Burns, at the time. 
and would not promote it. He instead preferred the song that was going to be on the B-side of the single, Don't Be Mad at Me. And Tito said, if you had promoted A Voice in the Wilderness a little more, it would have gotten to number one. My heart was so heavy with longing for you My arms were so lonely Lonesome and blue Alone in my sorrow I heard a voice cry A voice in the wilderness A voice from the sky I'm with Tito Burns on this one, actually. I, I, a voice in the wilderness is even more Ricky Nelson sounding, and that's something I'm going to say a couple more times as we go on. Mm-hmm. Um, but again... I'm not a huge fan of Novi Paramore's songwriting, but it's a basic doo-wop ballad. It's it's the, pretty much the standard doo-wop changes throughout. But I really like Hank Marvin's guitar on it. Um, mm. It's got a, lo- a lovely guitar tone, and I I do think I do think it's a better song and a better record than Don't Be Mad at Me. Um, and yeah, it, it deserved to be a number one given the pop landscape at the time, yes. And then we get, this song is very interesting, the next cut on here, The Shrine on the Second Floor. Interesting in a lot of different ways. It's written by David Henniker, Julian Moore, and Monty Norman of the James Bond theme fame. And this song, as we said, Expresso Bongo is a very cynical film. And the shrine on the second floor is is performed in a scene where Bongo Herbert is using Christianity or using spirituality as a marketing ploy. Obviously, Cliff would later on become genuinely concerned with spirituality and specifically Christianity, but oddly, perhaps prophetically, (laughs) here he is singing about it very earnestly on this recording. And it's not unlike how he was always photographed wearing a giant crucifix at that time before it really meant something to him. Once taught me what life had in store And I lift up my eyes to that same in the sky, in the shrine on the second floor. Whenever my troubles seem too much to bear, I look for the answer. I think it's very good at what it's doing, which is not the same as saying it's a record I would want to listen to in isolation. Um, I'm just double-checking my memory now, because I, I actually think, oddly, it's not in the scene you mention. Um, oh. I, I, as, I, as I recall, it, it's in a scene, he dedicates the song to his mother. I, That's it. I think, I think, oddly, A Voice in the Wilderness is the one he does in the religious Oh. Thing. Even though The Shrine on the Second Floor is the more obviously relig- religious song. I, I suspect there's been some shuffling around done there. Mm. But... But yeah, The Shrine on the Second Floor is definitely meant as a parody of a particular kind of sentimental ballad. Right. Uh, But then Cliff performs it straight as that kind of sentimental ballad, which actually makes sense in the film, because part of the point is that Bongo Herbert is a very insincere performer, but also not not a particularly intelligent performer. I mean, one thing that you probably haven't picked up on yourself, Herbert is a sort of diminutive slang term for... Um, right. Yes. For somebody who's a, a, a bit, a bit daft and a bit of an idiot. Right. Right. You, you, you could call somebody a, a scruffy little Herbert or something like that. And so the whole name is meant to make you feel to look down on him. And so he is 
the sort of the joke of both scenes in the film is that this not very intelligent, not very capable performer is taking these pieces of schlock very seriously. And I tend to think that the songs in the film that are written by um, Mankiewicz and uh, Monty Norman and the rest are much better constructed than the songs that Norrie Paramore write. Um, and in this case, it's very, very well constructed, but it's very well constructed as a parody that gets so close to the real thing that it can be taken as the real thing. Um, it reminds me very much of something like, there's a song Elvis did called Mama Like the Roses, which sort of goes, right. Mama Like the Roses in such a special way, we bring them every Mother's Day to put them on her grave. That, ca that kind of overbearing sentimentality. Um, and so it works wonderfully in the film, but it's not a record I'd find myself coming back to and listening to for pleasure in that way. But I, the song wasn't intended in that way, um, which is often the case with songs in musicals. And then we get to the last song on the EP, and here's your favorite person again, Nori Paramore, uh, <laughs> writing Bongo Blues, recorded October 19th, 1959. The best I can say for this the shadows always play well. I mean, there's yeah. never a moment on a shadows record where they're not top notch. This, Absolutely. even though Hank had used the very first Fender Strat imported into Britain on the previous record, Cliff Sings, this is the first instrumental to feature the Fender Strat. And it goes without saying that Tony Meehan is incredible. Yeah, I mean, I find it hard to believe that, that there is even a written by credit on this. It's it's a 12-bar blues jam. Um, and Hank plays wonderfully well. I, you can still hear a lot of the early James Burton influence in his playing. There's that sort of uh, fast-picking bit he does a couple of times, which is very, very James Burton chicken-picking. But then you get the, the sort of the bigger breaks with the, with the big reverb on, and you can tell, yeah, this is definitely Hank Marvin playing. But yeah, I mean, there's there's no... There's no real song there. It's it's purely an excuse to show off Hank Marvin's instrumental skills and some very, very good drumming. But it sounds like a million garage band surf instrumentals that came out around this time. Um, although, oddly, I mean, the shadows sound so much like surf bands, but there was no direct link between, you know, they right. were influential on the surf bands and the surf bands weren't influential on them. It's sort of a convergent evolution thing. But, you know, you could easily hear this as being a Dick Dale B-side or something and think, yeah, yeah. So we move on to the flip, which we already talked about a little bit of A Voice in the Wilderness, Don't Be Mad at Me, written by Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett, who were doing double duty for Elvis and for Cliff. And... The arrangement is interesting. Something about this song doesn't work for me. It sounds overcooked. What's a boy in love supposed to do? Don't be mad at me. No, don't be mad at me. Be mad at your lips. As soft as can be. As soft as can be. Be mad at your arms, but don't. Don't be mad at me. Oh. 
Tepfer and Bennett, God love them, they wrote some dreadful songs. Uh, they wrote a, a handful of good ones as well. Um, I actually really like the, the theme from the young ones, for example, which they wrote. Mm-hmm. But if you look at like the list of 40-odd songs they wrote for Elvis, I would challenge even the biggest Elvis fan to be able to hum more than about three of them. You know, But what I find interesting about this is that in 1959, 1960, there was a belief that the next big fad after rock and roll was going to be calypso music uh, right. because of the success of Harry Belafonte and people like that. And if you look at sort of news articles from the time, it's all rock and roll is dead, the, the calypso is the next big thing. And this is clearly trying to put feelers in that direction. Thankfully, Cliff doesn't try and do a Caribbean accent, which so many white singers of that <laughs> period did on these records and all. Oh. Um, but right. there, there, is, there is definitely a semi-Calypso feel to, to the arrangement, particularly in the in the early part of it, where you've got just the, the bass going underneath and stuff. Um, and I, I find it very interesting that they were thinking in that direction. They never went any further with it because obviously the Calypso fad died out after six months or whatever. But right. that's the thing I find about a lot of stuff from this period. Even when it's not the greatest music in the world, it gives you an insight into its cultural time. And I think that, mm. don't be mad at me, very much does that. So we move on to a single, Fall in Love With You, written by Ian Samwell, who, of course, wrote so many of these uh, very early Cliff singles. It got to number two, released on March 18th, 1960. Uh, you and I are probably going to diverge at this point because to me, this is the quintessential Cliff in the Shadows sound. I really, really love it. I like hearing the Elvis Presley affectations in Cliff's voice start to fade away and the shadows in Cliff finding their their sound. And Hank's guitar has this kind of dreamy quality to it. It's yeah. obviously influenced by Buddy Holly. And although it's not in the top tier of their singles, I like it. Falling in love again Falling in love again Why couldn't I, why shouldn't I Fall in love with you Why must you love your heart And keep we two apart Why couldn't I, why shouldn't I Fall in I, I like all the aspects you're talking about, the performance side of things, but I, I've i been very critical of the songwriting so far, and I, mm. I'm afraid I have to be again. I, I love Ian Samwell's earlier writing, um, but I don't feel his heart's in it with this one. Um, I can see why the B-side became more popular, um, because it, seem, it seems like Samwell is trying to write like Nori Paramore or like Tepper and Bennett, rather than writing his, his own stuff, which, which I think is a real shame um but you know clearly at this point they're moving into this uh, ricky nelson soft pop area and i don't think samuel was particularly suited as a songwriter to that kind of area um you know i think you, you get the exact same production on a song by you know, lionel bart or somebody um <laughs> and you you would you would get a, a much more interesting record but i i I don't feel like that Samuel's heart's in it on the songwriting. And maybe as well that's because by this point he'd been dumped by Cliff and, and was just purely a songwriter rather than a band member. And, you know, you, you can get into all that. But sound-wise, yes, I mean, this is this is the thing. I like the sound of Cliff once he stops trying to be Elvis. But I think the records he made when he was trying to be Elvis are more interesting. So send your mail to Andrew Hickey, folks. <laughs> 
All right. So let's talk about that B-side, because you did a whole episode on Willie and the Hand Jive. Yes. This is obviously written by Johnny Otis. This version recorded on November 19th, 1959. And yes, this was released due to fan demand, and there was some concern right at the very beginning that this should have been the A-side. And I would I would agree with that. Um, to be clear for your listeners, the the episode I did on William Handjive was on Johnny Otis's original. So I don't want you to go and thinking I've done the whole episode on this right, right, record because yes. uh, you'll be disappointed. But, <laughs> but it, the song the song was written by Johnny Otis in an attempt to have a British hit because he'd had a hit over here with uh, Mahi's Making Eyes at Me, which had been a surprisingly big hit and. His singers, the Three Tons of Joy, had come over and appeared on Six Five Special and seen people doing the hand jive. And so Otis wrote William the hand jive. And then the record completely flopped over here and was a massive success in America, where they didn't actually know what a hand jive was. And a lot of people thought he was referring to masturbation. Um, but um, Cliff's version, I. <laughs> It's almost heresy to say this as a Johnny Otis fan, but I, I I almost like Cliff's version more than Johnny Otis's original, mostly for the guitar sound on this, which reminds me very much of, there was a famous British guitarist called Mick Green who played in mm-hmm. the lineups of Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. And they, they did a, a Johnny Otis cover version, Casting My Spell, which I think is the best British blues record of the early 60s. And Hank Marvin's guitar sound on William the Hand Jive sounds exactly like Mick Green's guitar sound on Casting My Spell. I think it's a phenomenal sounding record. Um, the song itself, again, is not one of the greatest s- songs ever, but it's not really meant to be. You know, I know a cat named Way Out Willie. He's got a cool little chick named Rockin' Millie. You know, it's not... Um, it's it's not great poetry, but it does the job. And I I think this is one of the most exciting performances I've ever heard The Shadows give. Clearly, it's a song that they love performing because I think Cliff and The Shadows did it on and all the subsequent reunions here, right? Yes. Yeah, they continue and, to do it. And I believe this is actually the song that gave the world the shadows walk as well the famous or infamous dance because right. they they had to try and figure out a dance routine to get them to the point where they, they do this bit where cliff hangs his arms over over um right shoulders and that but they had to have some sort of dance routine the rest of the time and that's where they came up with that little sidestepping thing that then became so much a trademark of their live performances subsequently well here we are the last single we're going to discuss today Let's talk about the A-side. It was a number one record. Please Don't Tease, written by Bruce Welch, along with Pete Chester. Bruce and Pete were in a group with Hank called the Chestertons before Bruce and Hank hooked up with Cliff and became the Shadows, or the Drifters in the Shadows. Yeah. And the story behind this song, this was one of a dozen songs, I believe, that had been chosen by 200 fans who had gathered at Studio 2, Abbey Road, London, 
to listen to the latest output, and that got the most votes, and that was released as the next single. The very first Cliff record I ever bought was something like 25 Years of Gold, and this was a song that really stood out to me, and it kind of made me a Cliff in the Shadows fan. You tell me that you love me, baby, then you say you don't. You tell me that you'll come on over, then you say you won't. You love me like a hurricane, then you start to freeze. I'll give it to you straight right now. Please don't tease. Purely on a basis of songwriting, I think Please Don't Tease is the best written song that we've looked at, with the exception of Shrine on the Second Floor, which was written uh, sort of deliberately bad, but very well right. done deliberately bad. I, I think I think it's a great little pop song. Um, one thing that s- surprises a lot, a lot of British people, which it's a reference that won't mean anything to your audiences outside of Britain, but Pete Chester was actually the son of the comedian Charlie Chester, who was a mm. massive British star in the 50s through the 70s. Um, and this, go- this goes back to what I was saying before about the way that early British rock music really ties in closely with proper mainstream showbiz in a way it didn't in the States. Um, I I believe this is the first single that Bruce Welch wrote for Cliff, isn't it? And obviously he went yes. on to write he went on to write a lot of Cliff's most well-known songs. And it's it's easy to see why. There's a catchiness, but also a sense of belief in the song, which you don't get on some of the earlier ones. The um Nori Paramore stuff and the Tepper and Bennett stuff all sounds constructed with a sort of will this do attitude whereas even though on the face of it please don't tease is not a much more crafted song than those it's still a very simplistic piece of writing but it's clearly written by people who believe this is actually a good thing to be doing they're not writing it for for the paycheck they're not writing it because they've got to be another single out they're writing it because they want to write this song and i think i think that shows through i think it's a really good little pop record the flip side <laughs> features your your friends Tepper and Bennett. Uh, where okay, where is my heart? And again, I suppose, folks, I'm a fan, so I'm an easy mark for this stuff. I enjoy this song. I recognize that it's not in the same league as "Please Don't Tease." Yes. <laughs> um, I it is a B side. I mean, it sounds like a B side. I mean, this sounds like "Son of Fall in Love with You," really. Yes. Um, and I was thinking about. A contemporary artist who has a similar sound to this, and it reminded me of Chris Isaac. I don't know if you're from. Yeah, um, I am familiar, and I can I can see why it does. One cold, one key, two nickels, but gee, where is it? Where is my? girls walk by with eyes that smile faces that home I watch them walk I wonder turn away I try but I can't find words 
that reminds me of going back to the um, the, sh the shadows work. Actually, a, a, a really funny and rather telling thing. Chris Isaac is actually a really massive Shadows fan, um, ah. and I saw him on Jules Holland's TV show over here about twenty five years ago, and th this has always stuck in my mind. Um, he, he, Jules was talking to Chris Isaac about about how much he liked the Shadows, and Isaac was saying, "Yeah, I love them. They're so cool. They're so great. I've never actually seen the Shadows. I've only ever listened to the records." And they played some video footage of the Shadows doing the Shadows work, and Chris Isaac just looked so crestfallen afterwards. He, he, <laughs> full voice. I thought they were cool, <laughs> and there is that weird disjunct bet between this very, very, very cool in every sense of the word sound that you get on the shadows records this sort of Dwayne eddie comedio morricone kind of thing and the sort of rather geeky showbiz kind kind of appearance i love that disjunct myself but i i you can understand right yes yeah. this has been great andrew you're going to get some heated responses i, right? I just, just want to say i just want to say that i I, I, I hope I've made clear the distinction between the record and the performance and the song. I sometimes think that the performances are polishing up what are not necessarily very good songs. Um, and any criticism I have of these records is very much directed to the songwriters rather than the performers. Uh, I think that I think that on everything here, Cliff and the Shadows do the best possible job with the material they're given. Um, surprisingly so. Um, but I, I think that some of the material they're given to work with is simply not up to the standards of some of the stuff they would do before or since, um, which sort of makes sense in the context of Expresso Bongo because the music is meant to serve the narrative rather than the narrative serving the music. Um, so I, I think... I think Expresso Bongo is actually the most interesting work that Cliff ever did, but I don't think the soundtrack EP shows that in its best light. I would urge anybody, whether whether a Cliff fan or not, to watch the film Expresso Bongo, which I think is, it's not a masterpiece, but it's it's a very, very interesting film and very worth watching. And Cliff and the Shadows are very good in it. So I, I want to make that clear. I am not knocking them when I said right. that Norrie Paramore was was turning out any old rubbish as a songwriter. You know, I'm knocking Norrie Paramore. No, this has been great. I've really enjoyed this discussion. So where can people go to catch up with what you're doing and everything that you're all about? Most of what I'm doing at the moment is the podcast, um, which is at 500songs.com. That's 500thenumeralssongs.com. Um, and there you can, you can find... I'm, just about to upload the 136th episode of this history of rock music I'm doing, which starts in 1938 with Benny Goodman. And as so far, I'm just about to upload an episode on the who, which will probably be up by the time this comes out. Um, I've written books on various things, but that's the, the big, big project I do. And that's, that's where you'll find most of what I'm doing at the moment. Um, and like I say, there are, there are episodes in there on Move It by Cliff and, the, and on Apache by The Shadows. And for anybody interested in the broader free Beatles pop music in Britain, there are episodes on Tommy Steele, on um, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, on um, Vince Taylor, um, oh, and on Adam Faith. So you can check those out and hope, hopefully you'll find something interesting there. That's going to be it for this month. Thanks so much for listening. And 
next month, you know, with the holidays right around the corner, next month we're going to have a little departure from what we normally do. I know that sounds strange for a show that's only had five episodes that we're already going to have a departure, but it is the holidays. So next month, Mark Cunningham will be back with us. He, of course, is the biggest Cliff Richard fan in Ireland. He's going to be back, and we're going to be talking about our favorite Cliff and the Shadows books. That'll be next month on uh, the show. In the meantime, go over to the Facebook page, We Say Yeah, over on Facebook, and uh, you can... The phone is ringing. We don't have a phone number. I don't know why the phone is ringing. Anyway, yeah, we, we say yeah over on Facebook. And uh, we say yeah podcast at gmail.com is the uh, email address. And obrigado. That's how you say thank you in Portuguese. I figured it out. Maybe this is Brazil calling right now. I don't know. Anyway, have a great uh, month, folks. See you next time. We say yeah. We say yeah. We say yeah.